Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Oh man, would you like to have a seat? Um, thank you, Ben. Thank you, guys. Thank you for padding whilst I try and get my talk to work on my thing. And it's now working, but I've got my phone as backup. I can't see very well. If I read my talk off my phone, you'll know why. It's because my iPad's not working. And basically, I'm being afflicted by all things. They're all satanic, mainly the flashing lights. A clear sign of the existence of the devil is those lights. When we first um, were looking at this building to move into, I, um, we, there were lots of things that we loved about the building, and there were a few things that we found a bit difficult. The thing that I found most difficult was the blue neon lights. It's kind of like Hillsong on a very small budget. And I uh, mentioned it quite a few times in sermons, the blue flashing, the blue lights. And uh, people said, you just got to shut up about the blue lights. They're there. Just get over it. So I've got over it. And now look what's happening. We can't turn them off, and I'm going to have to compete with these lights. The devil's real, and he's inhabiting those lights. Anyway, good morning, everyone. I hope you're well. My name's Ed. Uh, I lead the church here with my wife. Uh, You're very welcome. We're starting a new series uh, today on the kingdom of God. And this is going to be a comprehensive series Uh, looking at the whole of the biblical treatment of the subject of the kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation, um, because the kingdom of God is the unifying and central theme of the whole story of the Bible, but also our ongoing experience of Christians uh, as Christians ever since. It's actually only in the context of the kingdom that we can properly understand the ministry of Jesus, that we can properly understand and take on the full meaning and power of his death and resurrection, that we are able to make sense of how the Old Testament fits with the New Testament, and that uh, we can see how we as 21st century Christians can uh, carry on the work that is started in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament as we see the first Christians embrace and uh, further the kingdom message and the kingdom reality. But, in my experience, a lot of people, even if they've grown up in church, haven't necessarily heard about the kingdom, or if they have, it hasn't been properly explained, or if they have, uh, and it has been properly explained, it hasn't been properly applied. So this series is really about getting us all, as a church, as Christians, on the kingdom train, the train that is headed towards glory, the only real Christian train. Because the subject of the kingdom is so fundamental to all, all scripture and to our own spiritual genesis 
that unless we are immersed in its theology and practice, our Christian experience is always going to be a little bit deficient. Symptoms of a Christian life, a Christian experience that is a little bit deficient are some of the following. Not limited to, but these are some of them. You can check them off if you like. Symptom number one, a thin, one-dimensional understanding of the gospel. If all Christianity is, is this, you say, sorry for your sins, Jesus forgives you, you get a nice pass to eternal heaven and escape hell. If that's all it is, then faith is going to have a minimal impact on your life. It's basically a life insurance policy. I have a life insurance policy, or rather I don't actually have a life insurance policy, but I do, do need to get one, and I keep trying to remind myself to get one. But even if I had one, do you know how much impact it would have on my day-to-day being? I would not talk about it when I meet with coffee for people. I would not talk about it or think about it when I play with my children or do my work or do some gardening or do anything because life insurance policies are quite boring and ineffectual to changing anything in our normal life. As testament to the fact that I haven't actually got one and I should get one. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, It invades every aspect of your being. It overwhelms us, and it gives us such a rich, multidimensional picture of God's work in our lives and the world that we're made for that we find it actually compelling in a way that draws us in and in and in. It allows the gospel to infect every nook and cranny of your life. Symptom number two, linked to symptom number one, a lack of personal transformation. You've been doing everything that you're supposed to be doing. You read your Bible, you pray, you have or you are waiting for marriage. But what is the change? You can't be necessarily sure that you're any closer to God or you see any tangible change in your life or in the lives of other people. Symptom number three, an uncertainty or lack of experience of the supernatural. As we often say, The Christian faith, our faith, is supernatural from start to finish. In fact, if you were to concoct a spiritual faith, you would be hard pushed to better, in terms of just extra supernaturalness, a virgin birth. Can you imagine God the Father saying to Jesus, preeminent Jesus, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start with you becoming a human. And Jesus would probably go, yeah, I like it. I'll become a human. I imagine a human adult. No, a human baby. And do you know what? You're going to be born to a 13-year-old. That'll be good. Oh, and also she's going to be a virgin. It is supernatural at the beginning, and then it carries on being supernatural throughout. He heals people. When demons are confronted by him, they cannot stay silent. They rush out screaming, you are the son of God. He calms storms. He feeds 5,000 people. Then the sky turns black. The curtain is ripped in two. The dead come out of their tombs because the Son of Man has died. And then he resurrects, having also resurrected other people. And then the Spirit is poured out. Our faith is supernatural from start to finish. The supernatural is us. And yet... So many live a Christian life spectacularly devoid of any supernatural power. Symptom number four, a frustration 
with a lack of impact in wider society and culture. Hasn't it been appalling, some Christian responses to what has been going on in our world in the last, I don't know, let's just say 18 months? Hasn't it been appalling? From ignoring or demonizing the plight of people of color in this country, to open racism, to denying climate change, to whoring out the gospel for political power, to greed, to embezzlement, to abuse, or perhaps just not actually ever putting their Christian heads above the parapet for fear of a, you know, offending some people, probably the donors. It's appalling, isn't it? But, as we always say, let's just check ourselves before we get too high on our horse. We have enough problems of our own, don't we? I know I do. But if church is supposed to be the hope of the world, why is there not more evidence? Symptom number five of a life that is slightly deficient because the kingdom is not the unifying central theme of it. Prayer life feels impotent. Prayer is not about, and it's not supposed to be, about us listing off a whole load of things that we would quite like the celestial Santa Claus to give us, but it is also not about finding the special little trick that suddenly unlocks a whole world of wonder. Prayer is actually about a dynamic collaboration between us and the King of Heaven, where we get to enter into what he is already doing. We, as uh, one uh, definition of it says, we are praying his thoughts after him, collaborating with him, as Paul says, so that we see real and impactful change both in our lives and the lives of the people we love and the, and the lives of everyone in this world. But all in all, these symptoms paint a picture of a God who's quite small. Maybe now and again he's our friend. Maybe now and again he's our help in times of trouble. Maybe he is our life insurance policy, but he's quite small. The negative impact on us as believers is obvious. Where's the power to change anything? But there is also a wider impact on the whole of society because humankind is hardwired for king and kingdom. It's actually how we were made. We are, as we've entitled this series, people in search of a kingdom. All of us are. To be human is to be that. And so if the real king and his real kingdom is hidden from view, is it any wonder that people will go after other kings and other kingdoms? As I've been kind of reflecting on what's been going on this year with COVID and lockdown and everything that's happened, and I think probably sort of saw its kind of nadir in those people storming uh, the capital uh, back in January, but let me tell you, I'm talking about left and right on the political spectrum. I'm talking about in-person vitriol and hatred and online particularly vitriol and hatred. I've been thinking and praying about this. And what I feel God has been saying over and over is something that he says over and over uh, throughout the Old Testament and then is actually reiterated by Jesus when he starts to preach, which is these are scattered people. They are sheep without a shepherd. 
They have no master. As um, the prophet Zechariah puts it, household gods utter nonsense. And the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and they give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep and are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And just for a moment, let's think of, um, as we have been doing, what's been going on in the wider world, in Afghanistan, the fallout of the earthquake in Haiti, the ongoing issues of COVID here and abroad. The world is in chaos. And I know people are exercised and worried about it, and we must be, and we must work and we must pray to see God's kingdom come. But this is the point. For us, in our own personal experience of Jesus, for the people in this country wandering around shepherdless, and for the wider chaotic world, we do not have to worry because our God is not small. The real God, the God of the Bible, the God of our faith, is irresistible. He's enormous. His power cannot be quantified. Do not make the mistake of distilling him just into your friend. He is your friend. Do not make the mistake of distilling him just into your help in times of trouble or your insurance policy. He will not be. He will not allow himself to be. He is so much bigger. Don't look to the stars to tell you who you are. What a silly thing to do. Look to the maker of the stars. In just a throwaway line in the creation story in Genesis, it says, and he also made the stars. Do you know, we don't even know what's at the edge of our solar system. One solar system amongst billions in this galaxy. Do you know how many galaxies there are in the universe? Billions. No one knows. He also made the stars. He will not be restricted to something small. And when Jesus is king again, in our lives and in the lives of those we love and in the life of this church, then the victorious, triumphant king brings his kingdom. We see it in all its unrestrained, all-encompassing glory. This is the hope for us and for our broken, lost world. So, this morning, that was all the introduction. That was fun, wasn't it? Anyway... This, we're going to start in the Old Testament today. We're going to do the whole of the kingdom in the Old Testament. Don't worry, I will go quickly. And then we will move on to the uh, subject of the kingdom throughout the New Testament over the coming weeks. The Old Testament presents the kingdom with two phrases. The Lord is king and the Lord will be king. The Lord is king and the Lord will be king. Firstly, the Lord is king. This is seen in the earlier history of Israel. The first explicit mention of the kingdom in the Old Testament comes in the book of Exodus. After God has delivered his people, Moses and the Israelites sing a song of joy. And at the end, they say, the Lord reigns. The Lord will reign. He is king. And they say that because they have seen not just his military might in delivering them from political oppression, but also his spiritual might in freeing them 
from the demonic forces of Egypt. So you know when Aaron brings his rod and he puts his rod down and it turns into a snake and then all the other magicians have their snakes and they go, Ooh, look, we've got snakes. And then the snake of Aaron gobbles up the other snake. This is a spiritual metaphor that the real God, the only true God, he is the victorious one. All the plagues are symbolic of the true God, the God of Israel, stamping his authority on these demonic powers. So when the sun is blotted out, the second to last plague, that is a sign that Ra, Ra, the highest Egyptian god, the sun god, has nothing compared to the real god. And so when they are delivered, the oppressed people, and God is the king who comes for the oppressed people, He always does because he cares for them and he wants to set them free. When they see this, they sing, the Lord is king. He reigns. He will reign forever. And the theme is continued through Joshua and then when David becomes king. And it is seen most most clearly in the reign of Solomon, uh, the second king, the son of David. And the reason uh, these kings can bring in the kingdom is because they are standing as sons of God the Father. He says, I will be their father, they will be my son. They will be my vice regents, my kings on earth, to bring in my kingdom. So let me read this from 1 Kings 4. This is at the height of Solomon's reign, starting at verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank. And they were happy. This is party time. The people of God were growing in number, and they were tasting of the messianic banquet. When God rules, as he does here in this kind of brief snapshot, the people prosper. They eat, they drink, and they're merry. Let's carry on, verse 22. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal. 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. Solomon is dining on the best of best food. Not just pasture-fed cows, but also stall-fed cows, because stall-fed cows don't get to run around and burn off the fat. They just get nice and fat, and people like fatty beef, some people. But also, not just that, he's got sheep and goats and deer and gazelles and roebucks and choice fowl. When the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon's court, she is astounded by all of this. Now, let's be clear. This is about enjoying God's creation. It's about taking pleasure in the abundance of what God has provided. This is a beautiful world that he has given us, and he wants us to enjoy it. God's kingdom is where life is lived to the full. And this is the picture that's going on here. What it is not a picture, though, is of avarice and greed, of waste and irresponsibility. Obesity, heart disease, these are peculiarly Western problems. They are peculiarly modern ones. In America, we throw away daily half our calorie needs. 40% of food that we create is wasted. Half a billion dollars every single day of wasted food. 
There is no sense that Solomon has so much food because he's a glutton and he just wants more and more and more. He has so much food because there are so many people to feed in his court because his court is growing because where the kingdom of God is, there is life and abundance and growth. Overindulgence, though, wastefulness, irresponsibility, that has no part in God's kingdom. But God's kingdom is also not about self-denial. Three and a half grapes cut into small portions, which I will chew 27 times each. It is not about that. Christians should be fun. We really should. I know I'm having a bit of a rant this morning, but we should be fun. We should be the funnest people on earth. We should be the last people on the dance floor and the first people at the bar every single time. Because Christians know that God is king. And the God who is the king is the liberator. He sets us free to be people of freedom, showing the world what it is to live free. Free to enjoy life, not needing to control it, not needing to be controlled by it. Instead, freed by the liberator. For he ruled, verse 24, over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River from somewhere to Gaza and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Now, the Old Testament concept of peace means much more than just the absence of war, although, of course, it includes that. Shalom actually is about a relationship uh, where um, God and uh, the whole of uh, culture and society are full of well-being. Everything from health to children to neighbors to crops to weather to worship to celebration, it is all well, good. And it's not just the royal court, Solomon, that in, that Solomon's royal court that enjoys peace, but everyone, every single man, woman, and child. No one left out, living in safety, under their own vine, their own one. Not given to them, but owned by them, and under their own fig tree. They experienced this shalom because of the true, all-embracing nature of God's kingdom rule. He defend, he's defending it on all sides. But it is set up organizationally and politically so that no one is left out. Neither does everyone have to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and live the American dream, nor is there any need for a welfare state. God looks at all human attempts to order society that we've been doing for thousands of years, and we keep thinking, oh, we're going to get the one in a minute that's going to make everything great, isn't it? He looks at all of these from the right to the left and goes, my kingdom is where people thrive. You know, this country is the richest country per capita pretty much in the whole world and also has the highest per capita poverty rate of any developed nation. In God's kingdom, everyone has their own fig tree. Everyone has their own olive tree which they sit under and they're at peace and they lack for nothing. I'm British so I can say those sorts of things. 
Uh, verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a, breadth of understand, and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan and some other people. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his, number, his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. When he talks about Solomon's um, mind being as great as the sand on the seashore, it's referencing what he said earlier in the verse, in, the, in these verses, to say that uh, Judah and Israel numbered sand on the seashore. He's using Solomon to say this was the case for the whole of this kingdom. And it's important to understand that for Israel, there was never a distinguish, uh, there was never um, distinction made between the material and the spiritual. The kingdom of God actually encapsulates all life without distinction. Thought, word, deed, material and spiritual, body, mind, and soul. Solomon's mind was wise because he saw things from the perspective of the kingdom. The greatest thinkers of the world should be kingdom thinkers because it is not possible to see the world and creation and mankind and life through the eyes of the kingdom and remain petty and small. It, encompass, it, it, it um, expands your whole outlook the more you are involved in the kingdom. And he's also a scientist, a biologist and a zoologist and an ornithologist and all the other ologists studying the plants and animals and ordering creation. So don't you dare tell me that science isn't important. I know you wouldn't, but some people might. He's created it and he wants it for his kingdom. And Solomon is creative. His songs number 1,005, which is approximately five times more than Kanye has released. And Kanye has released a lot of songs. And all Solomons were good. Because where the kingdom of God is, I love a lot of Kanye's songs, just so you know. Drake's. I know. Where the kingdom of God is, there is creativity abounding. Because it is reflective of a creative and beautiful king. And all of Solomon's creativity is not just spiritual. Let's not forget Song of Solomon's. This is a pretty explicit love sex poem. And so, for us, it's important to understand that art is art for art's sake in God's kingdom. Uh, we went to Paris for our vacation this summer, and we went to the Louvre and took the kids to the Louvre, and we saw the Mona Lisa and Venus de Milo and all those things. But what really struck me more than anything is just how much art there is in that place. It just goes on and on and on and on, and it is beautiful. It's quite awe-inspiring just to keep going to another room and another room and see it. And one of the, um, the biggest painting in the whole, uh, whole museum 
is, uh, it's about the size of this stage, uh, called The Wedding at Cana. And it's, it's enormous, and the detail is extraordinary. We spent so long just looking at it. And I know that this isn't exact, and I know that this isn't um, the whole picture, but for, for so much of modern life, it's been the church, and I know that they were abusive and didn't pay people properly, but it's been the church who has been at the forefront of creating great art, of supporting great art, of commissioning great art. Um, a friend who comes here to the church, uh, Yoan, who's an artist, and I remember talking with him, and he'd just come back from a Christian church um, art sort of symposium thing and, and display up at a quite big church in Northern California. And he said, the thing is, I got there and I opened the door and all the art fell into two categories. One was of um, a sort of uh, waterfall with a dove flying over it. And the other was of a chasm between two sort of cliffs and the bridge was across. And he said, it kind of made me a little bit sick in my stomach because where is the real art? Where is the beauty? Where is the prophetic call from Christians in the art world? It's there. It's just the church isn't celebrating it. The church isn't supporting it. Let us do that because art for art's sake is symbolic of what God is like, his beauty and his majesty, his prophetic leaning. Go to people's gigs. Support artists. Do it. We need it. And of course, many of, song, of Solomon's songs are overtly spiritual songs of worship. He, like his father David, was a worship leader. And it goes without saying that worship is at the heart of the kingdom experience. But there is worship, and then there's worship. In the greatest of the Bond films, Daniel Craig's um, Casino Royale, there is a scene where Bond uh, is with Vesper Lind, who is the sort of emissary sent uh, by the treasury to kind of look after him and give him the money, and he is slowly falling in love with her. Uh, she's played by Eva Green, and they're getting ready to go and play cards. Uh, in the casino, at the, and they're in their hotel room, and Bond, rather sort of misogynistically and neanderthal walks in with a dress and goes, I need you to wear this so that you, I don't know, look ravishing or something when you walk into the thing, and she kind of goes, Bruh. then he walks back to his um, bedroom, and she has already laid out a dinner jacket on the bed for him, and he's very angry, and he gets it, and he takes it back to her and goes, what is this? I've already got a dinner jacket. And she goes, there are dinner jackets and dinner jackets. This is the latter. And I need you when you to walk in when you walk in there to look like you actually belong. It's great. Anyway, there is worship and then there's worship. And what we're going for here, and it is such a encouragement to me and Hannah, um, really to see Ben and, and Angie and but Ben's really sort of taken on the worship life of the church. And it's so wonderful to see worship that's, you know, the latter, where it's not a show. It's quite hard to quantify, but it's the spirit. It's the type of songs we sing. It's the fact that we're actually meeting with the living God. Because, to me, it's a sign that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming.
as I've often said, our philosophy really for services is that none, I don't get to speak. I like speaking, but the idea is when it's really working, I don't get to speak because the worship is just so good that we've just got to carry on and on and on. Now, I want to speak, but I would prefer it that I don't get to. I want to speak because I really enjoy it. And you have to listen to me. Uh, but when worship's really cooking, we just stay worshiping the king. We'll do that for a bit. So this is the golden age of the kingdom as depicted in the Old Testament. The Lord is king and everything is right with the world. But of course it doesn't last. It can't because earthly kings are broken, frail people. And Solomon, like his father David before him, and like every other king after him, fails. He goes after foreign gods. He abuses his position. He stops being the son to his father in heaven. And God is no longer the king, and therefore the kingdom cannot be there. And so for the remainder of the Old Testament, we have the prophetic writings longing for this return. Longing for the return of the king to restore everything that has been lost. And this is the promise that the rest of the Old Testament depicts. They're clinging on to this idea, this vision that grew out of Israel's past, that the kingdom can be seen, that it is here, that the king can be, uh, can be the king of his kingdom. But that this time, God will come in all his glory. That the king will come with justice. That the spirit will be poured out in abundance. And the result will be salvation and forgiveness and healing and liberation and resurrection and an eternal joy that reaches the whole world. It will come decisively and it will come violently as the true king squashes all these fake kings that are robbing people of their identity, of their dignity, of their freedom. And the real king will arrive and change the world forever. Next week, we will turn our attention to the Messiah, to Jesus the King. But for now, let's consider ourselves as we end in the light of all of this. Firstly, one very important point. Language around kings and kingdoms and rulers and masters can be problematic for some very good reasons. It is a real shame that often the Bible has been taught in a way usually by sort of um, patriarchal people, to enforce a false patriarchal view on people, to control people, particularly women, with language of ruling and submission, and this is the big man God who wants you to do things. So talk of kings and rulers and masters can make people squirm. Now, when it comes to human masters, we are right to be wary. They have and always will let us down, which is not to excuse anything. It's just to state a fact. The king of heaven, though, on the other hand, he will never, ever do that. He is not here to restrict or subjugate you. Indeed, his desire is actually to do the opposite, to set you free. His kingdom encompasses every single aspect of our lives, our gifts, our relationships, our families, our hopes, and our dreams. The golden age of his kingdom is always going to elude us before we reach heaven. 
But when we see it, when we taste it, we cannot settle for anything less. Do not settle for anything less than the kingdom of the living God. But if we want all the wonder of his kingdom, it goes without saying that he is going to need to be our king. But knowing God as your king, not as a small God, as the enormous creator of everything, knowing him as your king in every aspect of your life, this is about living under his righteous administration rather than any sort of oppressive rule. He is not here to make you less of yourself. He's here to make you more of yourself, to see you expand into the fullness of who you are. That's what he's come to do. So what I'm asking us to do, as I ask myself to do, is to submit ourselves to him. What a horrible little word. And yet, when we do it, he can become our king once more, and he can become king of his kingdom. And all his kingdom can come rushing into your life and into the lives of everyone you know. That's what he comes to do. He will overwhelm you. As we often say, he is nice and he likes you. But he can be a bit scary sometimes. Because he's got a lot of power to change things. So what I suggest we do, we'll sing a song and then, uh, as always, we'll pray for people. Thanks for listening to me rant. Ben. Where's Angie? Ben, Angie. Let's, um, let's stand. So what I suggest we do is um, let us uh, speak to him as we need to speak to him. Just as uh, the musicians play for a moment, why don't you just spend this little secret moment? It's between you and him. He loves you. And let me just say a few things just um, while the musicians play. I, I just feel like God's saying that there is a huge level of gifting in this room. And I, I think particularly there is a huge level of gifting amongst, um, and this is not to dismiss anyone, but just to um, emphasize this, there's a huge amount of gifting amongst the women in this room. The Bible doesn't talk about gender. 
talks about people fulfilling their potential in the light of God's Spirit filling them. Some men are classically male and aggressive. Some of them aren't. It's absolutely fine. You are who God created you to be. Some women do like doing needlework, and other them are badass leaders. You've just got to be who God created you to be. That's the trick. And I feel like God is saying specifically that there is huge gifting that he wants to use for his kingdom in this room. So would you just open yourself to being filled with the power of the Spirit so that you might be who you were created to be and do what you're created to do. Let no one despise you because of your gender. Let no one. Because he does not. Come, Holy Spirit, fill your church. I bless what you're doing. Let's sing together and then we'll pray for people.
I bless what you're doing. Come, Holy Spirit, would you fall afresh on us? Would you give us all that we need? We love you. So um, I'd like to pray for um, a couple of groups. We'll just invite them here to the front, and we're going to pray for you. Those who um, are stirred about uh, their position in the, in the world to bring God's kingdom, the artists, the prophets, the songwriters, the writers, the leaders, and those who, for whom hope feels very fragile right now. As Hannah was saying during communion, we have hope because we have a person, a person who went to the depths and is alive and well. We have hope because he is ours. He is the one for us who beckons us forward. So uh, come to the front. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, there'll be people here who are um, trained to pray. They're just going to put a hand on their shoulder and bless what God's doing. And um, we'd love to do that for a bit, uh, but we'll hang out and um, Band are going to carry on praying uh, for a bit. But uh, God bless you. Have a great, um, what is it, Sunday. Of course it is. Uh, but um, we love you and um, here's the formal end of the service. God bless you. Bye-bye.